three weeks ago, we got off the ark with Noah. And my prayer for us is that we were inspired by that history to believe that it never gets so bad that God doesn't have a plan. And that we know in the mighty, precious, holy name of Jesus Christ, that plan has been revealed as the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who's ruling our thing, all things right now. So anytime you get to that moment where you say, what's going on, or why, or I don't understand, or it shouldn't be that way, he's sitting on the throne. And it's that way because he let it be that way. And so if we would be a people who don't find ourselves opposing God, it's important to learn what he's actually doing. And then see how what he's doing is he's bringing us fallen creatures back into alignment, back into harmony with his goodness. And this is what the symbol, the sign, the signification of the rainbow is. God did something new when he flooded the earth in order to remove the evil and preserve the good. God so loves the world that he will go to any length to save the world. He created it for himself. He wants to inhabit it himself. And the rainbow signifies this always. Wherever it shines, picture, photograph, sticker in the sky, it's always that promise that he's with you. Which again, do you remember, it's been quite a few weeks. I mean, isn't it a thing that the banner of the people who hate Orthodox biblical Christianity the most is a rainbow? And isn't it interesting how we have let them say it's theirs? and backed off and backed off and backed off so that it's no longer ours. And so the reason to chase the rainbow in the Bible is to see that like long before it was used to try to encourage people to think that the mutilation and abuse of children is love, it was used to say something far more powerful than that, which is that you cannot get so far outside of God's grace that he will not save you who are being saved. The elect, the chosen. I'm not going to go into a big debate about how this all works out in theory. Plato has his reasons for asking questions, and sometimes that's fine. But the point of election is that you never had a choice. It was never up to you. God has always been God, and you've always been his creature, and he's going to save you. So get used to it. Because it's joy, and it's peace, and it's trust. In the midst of the most nasty-looking, falling, end-of-the-world video game scenario I could imagine. You couldn't make up what's going on out there right now. Add aliens and zombies. It gets weirder. That's fine. But you can actually kind of see it there now. The demons are active. And here we are, overwhelmed by rainbows we're afraid of. What are we to do? As Jesus Christ lives, we are to declare his name again is what we are to do. And to believe that wherever you see a rainbow at every time, he is with you. And if you can take from this week then, this moment, this moment right now, right? So you're at the store and there's the rainbow and there's the person who you know is going to yell at you because they don't like what you have to say about rainbows, right? At that moment, can you pause 
in your fear, in your nervousness, can you pause and remember Ezekiel's vision? You're right there in Walmart. The, the, the ceiling goes away, is stripped away. The sky peels back, and there are fiery seraphim with Jesus in rainbow glory light staring down at you right now. He's like, I got your back. Like, I totally have your back. I have the entire world in my hands. Don't be afraid of the rainbow. <laughs> Don't be afraid of the rainbow. Ezekiel and John find this rainbow around that vision I just mentioned a moment ago, the, the Holy One, God himself. And they both receive a similar kind of gift out of this. And, and this reception of this gift, my goal today is to help you see that this is not Ezekiel's life. This is not John's life. This is Jesus' life, but that means it's your life. Because Jesus, again, has chosen you to pull you into his body. We call that the church. <laughs> his body. He's chosen to pull you into his body, the resurrected one that we eat in bread and wine, but actually are by faith now. He has chosen to pull you into that. And the way he's going to do it is the same way he always does it. He's going to put his word inside of you. And that's what these two fantastic stories show you. They show you that when you open your Bible and read Psalm 125, verse 1, out loud to yourself in the morning, even though you feel like it doesn't do anything, heaven moves in your favor at that moment. It just does. You can't stop it. The word is never void. The only thing that might be missing is your trust in it, or perhaps your understanding of it. A dull-hearted people has trouble imagining what a giant fiery chariot of animal beasts with rainbow fire looks like. Yeah? It's too hard to read about. Show me a picture, right? Uh, but this is just it. The pictures are unbelievable. And so let's, let's go back to that a little bit here. We're going to start at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28 today. This is page 692 of your pew Bible. This is a little review. Um, and actually, I, I said 28. Let's start at 26. Let's look at this picture of the pre-incarnate Son of God, the angel of Yahweh, the glory of Jesus Christ before he is incarnate in Mary's womb. Uh, it is, verse 26 says, above the expanse over their heads, these are these angel fire beasts, uh, over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. So imagine this glorious sapphire throne, you know, carved of one gemstone. Now, seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a man, it says human, but of a man in appearance, right? This guy wasn't a slouch either. This is like, this is the king of kings and lord of lords. This is some great warrior general of old. This is like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, king of Persia and Pharaoh all rolled into, he thought it up before they did. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, upward from what had the appearance of his waist, it were as gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed. So if you can imagine your fireplace or your fire pit in the, in the backyard and then take that fire and it's not vapor anymore, it's solid fire instead. That's what he looked like. I don't, what does that look like, solid fire? I, I don't know. But that's what he looked like, was solid fire. And downward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire and brightness. So he's solid fire in the chest. He's bright, fiery flame in the legs. And it's all rainbow all the time. That's verse 128. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. 
So was the appearance of the brightness all around. So the whole thing's rainbow fire. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Jesus that I saw it and I fell on my face and I heard him speaking. He falls down. That's what happens when you see the glory of God. It weakens you. You realize you're not, you're not as strong as you think. Now he calls out to him, son of man. In the Hebrew, son of Adam. Son of Adam. Stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And notice the command is fulfilled not by Ezekiel, but by God. He spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking, right? So the inhabitation by the Holy Spirit isn't something you choose. I mean, I've said it before, right? But, but you drive this into your head. <laughs> the moment you say, I believe in Jesus, God already did that for you, right? There's this big fight with the Baptists about how they think that when you make your decision for Jesus, it's really, really meaningful and you have to do it or you're not a Christian. And we're like, well, you know, you know Jesus does it, not you. Here's the thing. I don't think they think Jesus doesn't do it. I think they just mean you got to commit your heart to Jesus at some point in your life to authentically experience Christianity. And you know what? They're right. You do. But that's not something you do. That's just it. That's something God's going to do to you. God is going to wake you up. God is going to commit you to Jesus. God is going to compel you by the conviction of your conscience to love the word of God and to follow it the rest of your life. Yeah. Goodness and mercy. All the days. Yeah. So... Verse uh, uh, 1 and 2 again, the Spirit does the work, stands him on his feet. Verse 3, he continues to talk. God says, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me, and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are impudent and stubborn. Uh, The Hebrew is really cool there. Brazen-faced and hard-hearted, okay? So externally, they look like they're not listening to you. And internally, they don't want you to talk anymore. He says, I convert you to Christianity. Get ready. You're going to be amongst those who are like that. That's what it means to be a Philistine. That's what it means to be a son of Amalek. That's what it means to be Nimrodian. There's all sorts of things we could say about it. Just non-Christian now. Zombie, I guess, if you like. Stubborn and impudent. I send you to them, he says. And we could spend a lot of time on this. What it means to be the church in the midst of trial. What it means to be a congregation that knows from the root that some men and women will never listen to what you have to say. They won't. They will come in and they will say you should change what you have to say and that this is the work of the devil and that it is on us to resist that by believing that God means what he says. All of that's kind of here in this moment of Ezekiel's call, but I want to get to some other stuff later in the text during this service. So we're going to skip a little past how everyone's going to make funny faces at you when you say truth and they believe lies, and you should expect that, right? But that's what's going on here. But then scooting down, we, we see this scroll show up uh, in verse 9. I looked and behold, a hand was stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it and he spread it before me and had writing on the front and the back words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So this, this glorious rainbow fire God man gives by hand a scroll, a book is fine. It's easier maybe to imagine a book for us. Um, scrolls, though, I know you've seen them. It was the only way they had them until like 100 AD. 
Like Christians created books with binding to keep the Bible together because it was too big for a scroll. <laughs> uh, but before that, it was scrolls and, you know, 64 feet or so that unrolls and all this stuff. So it's, it's there in this guy's hand. Remember, this guy's hand's like made of molten fire. And this scroll has writing all over it. Imagine the rainbow, the fire, the light, all with the writing. And whatever rune you can picture, Celtic, you know, Druidish, Orcish, Elvish, I don't care. Picture a rune, Hebrew, looks like runes, okay? So it's written in this all over and light shining through the whole thing. And that looks cool. I'd like to read this book, maybe, except for what do the words say? Lamentation, mourning, and woe. Three words that refer effectively to sounds that a human can make. One is a high-pitched screaming sound. Uh, one is a moaning, groaning, sighing sound. And one is uh, an interjection of horror. Okay? Uh, we do these things. We don't really wail so much, though. Ah! Uh, you know, babies do it, though. Right? That's, that's that first one. The lamentation is the baby screaming. Right? But that's actually how people used to do funerals, like way back in the day. So you just get together and scream all day. Um, it, it got the pain out, I think, was the idea. Um, so that's one of them. Right? The other one, uh, the second one, uh, mourning, but really uh, muttering, moaning, sighing, growling. So as opposed to, ah, it's more like, ugh. Right? And then the last one is literally the word woe. Why? Whoa! Ugh. Which was what people would use to cuss with before our current words, okay? So you hit your finger with the nail or with a hammer instead of the nail, and you say, oh, blah, blah, blah. And we got all sorts of things we can say as Americans, but whoa would have been kind of, Oy! you know, how they said it. Point being, then, this glorious fire light book that is being shown to Ezekiel is filled with all the things you just don't ever want to feel. Ever. <laughs> right? Everything you try to avoid when you wake up, it's written. And then God's like, eat it, man. Trust me. It'll be good. Verse 3. Excuse me. I did that last for service, too. Verse 1 of chapter 3. It's a big 3 in the text there. Uh, he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Right? And I got different ways I try to imagine eating the scroll. You've probably heard the phrase, you know, eat my hat. Uh, it, it's not something that's going to taste good. I know most of us as young children put paper on our tongue, so we kind of know, like, that's, I don't want to do that again kind of thing, right? And he's like, eat it. It's going to be really dry. How's this going to go down? I can imagine that he, he, like, grabs a piece and it, like, turns into cake. Like, that's kind of cool. Like, it just does that because, you know, five loaves and two fish and, and why not? Um, but nonetheless, it is a book that he has to eat, and he does he eats it, however you imagine that happening. And it fills his stomach, and in his mouth it is as sweet as honey. That's the end of verse 3 there. In his mouth it is as sweet as honey. So what he has as his experience is that God's word sure looks like it's terrifying, it's hard, it's too much, and in fact, it will make me bitter in my spirit. I don't want to read the Bible today. I got better stuff to do, right? We've all felt it. And in fact, once you read the Bible, you find that it's sweet as honey on your mouth. 
Once the name of Jesus starts coming out of your lips, you, you, you want that a little more in your life. Hallelujahs, they ring. <laughs> Amens work really well. Yeah? The language of the Bible is filled with the Holy Spirit, especially when the name of Jesus is attached. And as Jesus Christ lives, I promise you that's true. Huh? It works really well. Uh, so he then uh, has this sweetness of honey in his mouth what happens next in the text, I want to come back and look at after we go to Revelation, though. So I want to look at the same picture from the other side with Revelation chapter 10. So if you can mark your Bible and find your way to page uh, 1033, you'll get to Revelation chapter 10 in your pew Bible. And again, remember now he's getting this same kind of thing happening to him. He's seen the throne room already. That's not where he is right now exactly, but he was there and he saw the fiery guy on the throne and then he looked away and he looked back and he saw a lamb looking like he had been slain who takes a scroll from the fiery guy on the throne that cannot be opened. And he opens it. And a bunch of stuff happens, and then he shows up looking like this glorious rainbow-crowned angel with his feet on the land of the sea, legs of burnished bronze, chest of fire, face shining like the sun. Spent time last week making the case this is Jesus ascended. The word angel means messenger, means one mediator between God and man at this point. He's not, he's not a created being, right? but he is inhabiting human flesh. Mystery of mysteries, that is. Uh, so... He is there, and verse 8, a voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. So again, where the lamb had a scroll unopened, now this messenger of rainbow fire has the scroll opened. And the same thing that happened to Ezekiel happens to John. He's told, Go, take the scroll yeah. So I went to the angel, told him to give me the little scroll, and the angel, he, Jesus, said to me, take and eat. And if you don't have an echo of what we're going to do in 15 minutes in those words, then put it there now. Take and eat. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing from the beginning to the end. Take and eat, he says. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So he warns him here, right? Things haven't changed so much with the resurrection of Jesus that the carnal nature of man, our stomach, our flesh, isn't embittered every day. Often at God. Often for God's word. And nonetheless, that same word is the air that we breathe in faith. It is the, the food that we eat on the journey. Bread and wine are nothing when compared to the power of the word of God spoken. And imagine then again how powerful it is when it is spoken into being as bread and wine and more. Yeah? You have to believe in miracles to get that kind of thing in your heart. But coming back to the text again here, right? Uh, he, he takes the scroll and it goes into his stomach bitter, but it's sweet as honey in his mouth. You have the dichotomy, the polarity, the opposite reality of in my flesh, I don't want to read the Bible, and I never will. In my spirit, by the name of Jesus Christ, I do it every day. It's the best thing I do. And I get to live with both of those realities the rest of my life, trusting that the rainbow promises are in the bread and wine now. And the only reason I can think or say or believe this at all is because he started it in the first place. And he plans, or he who began a good work in you, he, he plans to bring this to, to fruition for you. 
Now, so after he does all of this, we have that whole section that shows up about the two witnesses that you heard read. And uh, it is a little disconnected, but no, I don't think it is, because I really do believe you're supposed to see yourself in this story. There's a, there's a good radio podcast I recommend often called Issues Etc. who has a tagline that goes like this. It's not about you. It's about Christ for you. And in like 80% of conversations in the world, it's absolutely true all the time. But there's a couple places in the Bible where it really just isn't true. It really isn't. Uh, it is about you. When it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, you see it's about Jesus, right? But, but it, it's about Jesus for you. <laughs> there's no Jesus without you. I mean, there is. But not in his mind. No, there's not. That's what he is. He's here for you. He's chosen to be here for you. The whole point of saying it's not about Christ, or it's not about you, about Jesus, is so we can say it's Jesus for you, which, again, means that it is about you as you are tied to the very real story of Jesus Christ that's in this marvelous book that looks something like a stuffy old tome uh, until perhaps you, you take a step back. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift. I didn't plan this, but I'm going to tell a story right here. I hope it helps some of you, some of you today. Um, I used to really, really enjoy video games. I still think they're kind of amazing. I just don't want to give my life to someone else's time. That's a longer story. But I remember being so excited about this one game that was so complex that you could literally almost live inside of it. You had to get food, you had to have a place to stay, and if you wanted to be a wizard, you had to literally sit there and hit the button over and over again so your hand on the screen would make the spell that didn't work over and over again until you spent enough time in your tower studying the book so you could learn how to make the book do what it's supposed to do, and then you could be a wizard, you go out and you make spells happen. And after, I don't know, 10 minutes of pushing that button, I was like, what, what am I doing? And it struck me that I had the real thing on a shelf. I just had to open it and start using it like it was a wizard's book. Now, I don't mean that the Bible is magic and that the metaphor will fall apart. But I will say that on my, my ordination certificate, which is entirely in Latin, I'm declared a magistri divinitatis, a mage of the divine. That's what a pastor is. He's, you know, his, his education is, is in the school of the magi. And let me suggest to you that a pastor is just a Christian man who stands in front at the end of the day. He's chosen for this. He's ordained for this. But that's kind of what he is. And so you are also... Magi, insofar as this tome of not magic but wisdom is yours to open and read. And the more that you do, the more that you will find you have the right things to say in your life. You'll have the right things to say. They'll come to your lips. I suggest start with Psalms and Proverbs. Don't start with Leviticus and Numbers, right? Go listen to the first sermon. We spent some time on that, and I can explain more why you shouldn't start with Numbers if you need that explanation. But Psalms and Proverbs, again, you put them in your mouth, in your ear, in your heart every day. They start to come out. They start to encourage the other Christians around you. You start to meet Christians who aren't even Lutherans, and you start to not mind that they're not Lutherans because they encourage you and you encourage them. And you believe that the Word of God is active in their midst and working for us against the tyranny and evil that we see in very real powers these days. 
But we can know that the church of God, the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, are under the rainbow of his majesty. And as heterodox or heretical as our wings and divisions and schisms have made us, nothing shall stop the body of Christ from winning, and you're inside. Stand firm, right? Stand firm. It's a good thing. I got to get back to the text. <laughs> I, I love what this does to us, though. The two olive trees. We're going to skip the measuring of the temple and the people of God, except for notice this, you know, Revelation 11. After he is given the word to eat, he says, look, and he sees a temple that's also the people. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit now, plural. Individually, members of it, plural, the church together. He's told to measure that, and he's shown how it's going to be filled with suffering for half of forever, or half of from the beginning of time to the last day. That's what those uh, 42 months and 1,260 days are about. That's sort of subcode for half of time, or all the time from Jesus' resurrection to his return. So in that time, it talks about how there are these two olive trees, two lampstands, two witnesses that shall never be destroyed in all the time from Christ's ascension to his return. And if you are someone near a psychotic breakdown, you may in fact think that you are that person individually and specifically, and you may try to go stand in the streets of Manhattan and preach Christ. And I hope Christ is preached, but that's not what it's about. Okay? We're not waiting for two guys to show up in New York and speak in the streets, get murdered, and rise from the dead. I guess it could happen, but far more important than that is to recognize that the two witnesses are the two testimonies that God has established as his permanent sign that he is with us forever. And this is more than just a rainbow now. It's very simple. This is called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? Moses and Jesus are the two witnesses. And by that, I don't just mean the men, although Jesus for sure, but the words. So what these two witnesses are, these two trees lit by the fire of God's, you know, olive uh, oil, which you can see all this in the book of Zechariah as well. It's kind of cool there. These two trees are the church in Old and New Testament. And no matter what the enemy tries to do to their testimony in the Old Covenant, God was sure. And it worked just like it was supposed to. And in this New Testament era, double down on the fact that God takes oaths. And when he takes oaths, he means it. Yeah. So in this, then, you are the two witnesses, both of them, when the Bible is open. And your mouth is unafraid and unashamed to say the name of Jesus. These two witnesses are all of us. They're Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They are David and Solomon and, and even maybe Rehoboam and Manasseh, right? And they are you and I. They are Luther. They are Augustine. And the world keeps saying, they're going to die. They can't survive. Let's get them now. And every time fire comes from the heavens, the rain stops falling. Something goes really wrong in the culture. Because God has a plan to save the church. See that there, and let's go back to Ezekiel again and find the remainder of his sending, commission in chapter 3. Where, again, bitter in stomach, sweet on the lips, expecting the battle of the saint against the sinner, expecting the battle of the Holy Spirit against your flesh, 
every day. I cannot express to you how debilitating it was to me and I know to many other Lutheran people that they kept trying to stop sinning with their heart because they've been taught that to look at a woman lustfully is to have adultery with her, to hate your brother is to murder him. And while this is true, and so on judgment day, you are not free and absolved unless you're free and absolved. You're now free and absolved. So the battle isn't to make your heart perfect. I'm I'm afraid it just won't work for you. It is deceptive above all things. You'll think you're perfect and hate others, or you'll just hate yourself. The battle is to know, I got this really woe heart, and it can't stop Jesus from making me sing his praises the rest of my life and rising from the dead anyway. I get to carry that with me, this heart. And I get to know that between here and the last day, I can leave a trail of pain or a trail of comfort. And so no matter what's going on in my heart, I'm going to master, I'm going to discipline, disciple my tongue and my hands. So you're, you're not going to know my sin. You don't. You think I'm a good person. I've had people come up to me, actually, and say, I, I listen to you online. You say you're a sinner. I can't believe it. <laughs> hmm. You know, I know. It's inside. Keep it there. That's sanctification. That's mortification. That's the new obedience of growth in life and truth. You hear complaints coming out of your mouth? Shut your mouth. But I don't feel like an optimist. Yeah, you're not supposed to. You feel like a sinner, but you can speak optimistic things, and other people will feel optimistic when you do. And what do you know? You do it loud enough, they start saying it back to you. I found that. It's kind of amazing. One of my favorite things the last couple of weeks is I've had no less than three, maybe seven people come up to me like, I have an idea. And they share this idea. These are people from far away, people from here. They share an idea, and I like I've been shouting it for two years. Yeah. But that's the way that this works too. The word of God has to be said again and again and again and again, and it starts to take root. And then so you go home, you say it again and again. Say it, pick a Psalm 23, 125. Say it every day. Say it out loud again and again and again. Let it take root and believe it's the promise of God spreading his seed into your actual world. The area around you. And I cannot, I cannot underestimate the power of the angels. I, I feel like a mystic when I say this, but I think it's as orthodox as the day is long and it's as biblical as the day is long. The angels hear you when you sing Jesus' name. And they like it. They don't like it when you shout words from the rap song about this and that to that, this and boot, right? Whatever evil comes out of your mouth and you say it. Oh, the girl was so hot. I slept with her last night. Whatever, right? Uh, the angels don't like that. In fact, they kind of get a little cowardly, and they're like, well, I don't know what I can do about that, right? So again, believe this, that the scripture matters to them. And so even opening it in weakness and degradation and, and powerlessness and praying it, light, fire shines within you that the angels know about. And if you say it out loud, they're singing with you already. Join the song of all creation. Yes, we just sang it a little while ago. Lift up your voice with that name because the devil flees. The devil flees from the name of Jesus. All right, we're still back at Ezekiel and I want to get more of the text um, after you fill your stomach with the sweetness of the word, right? That comes out of your mouth. Uh, He says, verse four, son of man, Chapter 3, verse 4. Go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. 
For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and hard language, but to the house of Israel. Um, that bit about foreign speech and hard language, it looks like I discarded that one, so I'm going to find that here. Um, the language is, uh, it's not the word foreign, like alien or foreigner or ethnicity or something like that. It's just the word deep, like, like a really deep ocean, like it's, you can't fathom it. Like, you know, the word fathom means to drop something in the water and see how, how many fathoms there are, right? It's unfathomable. It's so deep. They're, they're, he's not sending them to people who are saying really wise, powerful things. Right? Um, nor is it, uh, it it's translated as uh, uh, clumsy. Uh, where, where was your English is going to be? Hard. Clumsy. The word's actually the word glory. Glory. Glorious speech, which can mean heavy. Glory and heavy are the same thing in Hebrew thought. You think of glory as light, probably, right? So imagine light that then, like, is heavy, <laughs> right? Uh, that's glory. Um, and he says, I'm not sending to a people of a glorious tongue, not a deep tongue, not a glorious tongue, which ultimately is saying that whatever they're going to try to say to you, it won't compare with what I'm saying to you. And again, Christian, this book's about you. This is about how the word of God works in your life. This is about how people who don't believe have all these arguments they come at you with. And I know you've heard them before. Why does God do that? How come Jesus is the only way? This, that, the other thing. They just come at you with these things. But the promise here, again, is that those things they say, if you slow down enough to know what your word says, they ring pretty hollow in the ear. I had someone this week, actually. I met someone not a Christian. Nobody, you guys don't know who this person is, but this person wanted to know why Jesus was the only way to heaven when this person found out I was a Christian. And I got about four words out before this person said, I don't understand, it doesn't make sense, and listed like three sentences of reasons. I got about six words out. And this person said, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make And she just kept throwing the same kind of rote atheistic trope of apologetic at me. And it wasn't that I didn't have answers for her at all. I have plenty of answers for her. What I didn't have was her time to care about what I was saying. Hard-hearted again, right? Uh, not filled with glorious arguments. I didn't need to really address the arguments. I realized that wasn't what I should do. What I should do is distinguish that my religion's different. Though we just have different religions. And that, that, to the person who says all religions are true, is very offensive, actually. And it was when I said it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you get to the root rather than try to hover around the flower a little bit, right? So they're not able to withstand the actual wisdom of the Bible when we put ourselves in the actual wisdom of the Bible. Not to peoples of foreign speech, hard language, again, whose words you can't understand. And then notice this. If I sent you to them, they would listen, Right? There's a, there's a part here, again, where God's expecting people to resist what he says. And again, he knows when they're going to hear, when they're not going to hear. That's not up to you. He knew then at this time for Ezekiel, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. For they're not willing to listen to me. All the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. There it is, brazen face and hard-hearted, right? Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces. And your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Huh? So what I want is for the rainbow 
to remind you that you have a forehead of bronze lit with the fire of God's rainbow wherever you go. And again, if you can pause for a moment and just see that chariot in the sky with him flaming on top of it, brow lined with the thorny scars and his hands showing where the wounds went in, but he's still filled with light and glory, right? White hair, gold sash, all this stuff. And now, you know, these people moving around, I'll just say Walmart again because it's local for me. I often am there. These people moving around at Walmart that at first I always worried about this, that, or whatever. A million stories to make me afraid. And now suddenly I'm a king in their midst. And I've been sent not so I can, like, get mine. I've been sent because nothing can take mine away. And so I can give. And if nothing else, to a world that's inhabited by fear, fear, and more fear. To look someone in the eyes and give them the dignity of an hello. Yes, you're really a human. Yes, I really saw you. Yes, I'm not going to be afraid of you. Yes, do you need my help? Again, this is how Christianity changed the world the first time. And I don't think we're done yet. I think we're just getting set up for like a really strong run. For us to build on the foundation, he's got to tear down a lot of the sandy shoals that have been built up around, right? If you're going to build a currency on usury, eventually the scale's going to fall over. Uh, Sorry, Federal Reserve, and I don't mean to be political. I'm not. It's just a biblical reality. You can't steal forever without it eventually having nothing more to steal. Our currency is going to go through that over the next, what, 10 years, 20 years? I don't know, but the science is really obvious. Um, They're depleting the currency. So what are we going to do? Oh, my goodness, what's going to come next? Where are we going to get the money? How's the church going to stay open? Stop it. We're here today. Jesus is going to feed us his flesh and blood. He's filling us with promises. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing is going to stand against his church. You are his son, begotten forever. Know that today is what you are to face and that his promises are with you tomorrow morning anew. And then get up and drink deep of that rainbow before you go off for the rest of your life. At least crack the Psalms and get something out. Read one proverb. Praise the name of Jesus for who he is, right? And as Jesus Christ lives, remember that he isn't going to drop you. He's never, ever going to drop you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.